0: This week on Around the Coin, we interviewed Amanda Jacobson,
1: the chief of staff for Oyster Financial, a neobank for small businesses that's headquartered in Mexico City and San Francisco. Prior to joining Oyster's executive team, Amanda invested in a portfolio of fintech companies down in South America, or Central America as well. Uh, the innovation lab of Gentera, where she was focusing on generating sustainable solutions for financial inclusion. And she also led the expansion of Village Capital, supporting 50 ventures and eight startups. We had a really exciting conversation. We talked about everything about Mexico, South America, the evolution of tech, the future of investing in Central and South America. She lives in Mexico City, obviously speaks Spanish, and has a tremendous insight to how the banking and financial sectors work in that part of the world, Central America. So really enjoy the conversation and I hope you do as well. I bring you Amanda Jacobson. All right, here we are live, Amanda. Nice little pre-show conversation. Uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you for joining the show. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, but yeah, for listeners, can you just uh, give a little bit of background as to who you are, uh, what you're up to in Mexico, and uh, we can go from of course. there.
2: And thanks for having me on the show. It's very exciting to be on this podcast. Uh, this a little bit about myself. Originally from Los Angeles, but I've been in Mexico for the last six years. Currently I'm here with Oyster Financial. We're building a small medium bank, a small medium business neobank. Um, so essentially, we're looking to provide better financial services for business owners in Mexico. Um, a little bit more, I studied business and psychology at Emory University. Straight out of college, I went to India, actually, not really so excited about the, the traditional business opportunities to be a consultant and jump into finance. Um, and it gave me an awesome opportunity to really learn about entrepreneurs. Uh, I dove really deeply into social entrepreneurship, so different sectors and how we could find that intersection between business and doing good for the world. Uh, That brought me to Village Capital, where a few years later, a couple years later in the U.S., I ran our first, my first program with them was health entrepreneurs in Boston. And they gave me the opportunity to come here to Mexico and launch their programs here. And that's kind of where my career in entrepreneurship really took off. Uh, First, running the accelerator for Village Capital, expanding that across Latin America, starting with financial inclusion, going to other sectors like health, education, uh, then I led the VC fund at a corporate called Compartamos Banco. It's a microfinance bank. It was the FinLab fund. We had a portfolio of nine financial inclusion in investments there. And then from there, I really started to wonder how good of an investor I could ever be if I didn't have that entrepreneur experience. So I found uh, Velash and Gabo and the team at Oyster. Actually, we we reviewed them in our pipeline um, we got really excited about the SMB opportunity in Mexico and in Latin America. Um, such an untapped market. There's big saturation right now in terms of neobanks for consumers, but financial products at large, both in Mexico and abroad, are just totally missing for small, medium businesses. Um, so, saw a really exciting opportunity, great market opportunity as well, amazing team, and here I am.
1: Nice. Nice, I love it. What, when you say uh, the products that neobanks are not providing, what what is that yeah. exactly? Just for my own space. Uh, so,
2: in terms of like neobanks specifically in Latin America, uh, there's a lot of great businesses that are on the consumer side. So, sort we're of seeing like Fondeadora, Cuenca, Albo. Um, in Mexico and across the region, there's lots of banks that serve individuals, but almost nobody mm. serves the small, medium businesses. Um, and not just in neobanks, hmm. like the actual traditional banks are a pain. Uh, if you're, at, hmm. I, I don't know, I haven't tried to open a bank account in the U S maybe you could compare it with me there. But, uh, here, um, my boyfriend starting his company, he's tried with three Mexican banks. Each of them have taken about two months to open. Um, they need to do physical home checks. So they come to our door with no announcement to, oh, it's not, it's supposed to be an office check, but we're what? doing it's home office, right? So this is our office. Um, so to verify that you have a legitimate business, they show up, but there's just no user experience. Um, everything is very traditional processes. They don't consider the kinds of new data and user experiences that you could use to really serve a business owner. So you end up, yeah.
1: That's crazy. That's crazy. Why did they, why did they need to send <laughs> a human being out to your house? What are they inspecting you for? Like uh, fraud yeah. of not Having a house.
2: <laughs> so it's actually part of the Mexican law that for formalized banks, so banking institutions, not fintechs, you have to go to the site of the office. Um, my understanding is that a lot of that is anti-money laundering, um, making sure it's not connected to anything with drugs or anything illicit. That they come to your home and see if you say that you're a small business owner, you have certain income that you don't have a Ferrari outside. So they want to like see that you have a legit Mm. business operation, but not all businesses have an office, right? So they end up going to your home, which Mm. is very invasive. Um, the law is progressing a little bit because of COVID banks and financial institutions can now apply to do it over video. But a lot of banks haven't done that yet. Evident Mm. by people knocking at our doors, strangely. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, that's pretty strange. So if you live in the middle of nowhere, I mean, say you live a hundred miles outside of the city, they're sending someone out to. I mean, will they do that? It seems like a tremendous amount of resources to <laughs> open it's a bank account. It's an amazing
2: example of the inefficiencies that exist here. And yes, if you want to open a formal business bank account, not a consumer account, but a business bank account in Mexico, the bank agent needs to go to you. So you could have just imagine all the the brick and mortar costs, the people cost, the sales force. All of these uh, offline traditional activities, um, one, are costly, but two, are just inefficient for everybody involved. It's uncomfortable for everybody involved because we're not using the mobile, the web, all the different kinds of touch points that we have that didn't exist when these laws were created 50, 100 years ago.
1: Yeah, that's pretty wild. How many
2: people live in Mexico?
1: So there's, I think there's 300 million in the US, do you know, Uh off the top of your head? About 125 million. Yeah, so it's a uh, little less than half the size of the U.S. Is a good in population, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Rule of thumb, yeah. And then, do you think about from a business perspective the size of the market being? Yes. How do you think about that? People uh, unbanked or yeah. Well, so there,
2: there's formalized business and unformalized businesses, but from the government data, the best we know. Um, Before COVID, there was 4.1 million businesses um, of all sizes, small, medium, large, micro in Mexico. But the latest data that came out is that a quarter of those businesses, so 1 million businesses, closed in the last year. So we're probably hovering... 1 million million businesses? businesses. Um, In Mexico, 70% or a little bit over 70% of the jobs come from small, medium businesses. And so, if you imagine a million businesses, that's most of the jobs, or a lot of the jobs in Mexico have been lost over the last year. Um, So, it's definitely a difficult time, and there's a lot of effort we need to do to to rebuild the economy.
1: Oh my God. Uh, In the US, people, in the US, uh, as you probably know, there's a huge tax. Uh, not a tax it 's a stimulus bill um, there 's multiple trillion dollar bills, and you know I check my mail and it 's like a thousand dollars in the mail i, I didn 't even hear about one of them and i 'm just thinking this can 't be this can 't be the right solution long term mm-hmm. you know it, it, at best it 's a band aid that 's effective. Uh, but it seems like just printing money and then sending not just not just some money to people who need it, but just blanketing the entire country with free money like airdrops just doesn't. I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not firm on my opinion on it, but it just doesn't seem like we warrant that in our current state of affairs. I mean, this has been COVID is is obviously very difficult for a lot of people, but it's not the black plague. Like it's not killing. 30% of people get it. It's you know some fraction of a percentage. So I I'm, I'm thinking what do you feel that in Mexico there's a good balance between the 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 costs of shutting down businesses and the costs and the benefits of the influence of COVID on there. I presume this is what yeah boost why the, why a million businesses are shut down the last year. I'm curious to hear what you think of um, that.
2: So, I mean, net we've lost about half a million jobs. And the Mexican government is not giving these kinds of stipends that you see in the U.S. Um, mm. There is almost nothing for low-income people besides uh, businesses, like other programs that were already existing, um, like pensions and, and for select groups of society. Um, and for businesses, late in the game, a few loans came out. But I mean, it was very, it was accessible to very few businesses. um, And clearly that's not going to help generate the economy again. Um, One, one Mm. study that always stuck with me in Africa, five, 10 years ago, they did a study where they gave a few hundred businesses, $40,000 each. Just blanket with no strings attached, no program or education attached. And they gave nothing to the rest of those businesses And they did see that those that had that 40000 k boost at the beginning, they survived longer, they generated Mm. more jobs. And the jobs piece, I think, in in tying back to like, well, how do we create sustainable... um, How do we keep people out of uh, poverty in a sustainable way? I think that that's really interesting. And what uh, giving stipends to businesses can do, especially small-medium businesses, to create more jobs... Um, to keep people in the market where they are self-employed, where they're not depending on the job market. And so they're a little bit less um, susceptible to fluctuations in the market. Um, and, and like you said, I don't have a strong opinion on it either. I think stipends are difficult. <laughs> it needs a lot more research. But I think mm. the aspect of loans is where you can find like a happy balance. And especially with the kind of creative loans that a government can give where it's interest or over long periods of time and flexible to the needs of businesses. Um, and the, and so I think it was an amazing initiative that the government did give some loans to businesses. The problem is that it still left a huge gap. Um, over the last mm-hmm. year, the traditional banks have given out less and less loans because it's harder to underwrite the businesses. There's more fear because of COVID. Mm. The economy is going poorly. They can't afford to have bad debt. They can't afford to have businesses not pay them back. So they just don't give out the loan. Um, so we've seen mm. with our early pilots, uh, about 40% of the businesses that we offer a loan to take it. It's 40% take rates, huge mm. for any product. Um, so the demand mm. for credit and something to help keep your, we say it in Spanish, las cortinas arriba, the curtains uh, open. How do you keep your business open? Mm. There's huge demand for credit or any kind of solution to get over this hump.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm curious to learn more about this. So Oyster uh, does a few different things. Um, you Is it correct to say you, you're, well, you, why don't <laughs> yeah. you tell me? What, what are the key products that uh, the company offers. So you guys just raised some money, like $20 million Series A a couple months ago. We're recording in May. It was in, what, February? Yeah, I think
2: our last announcement was a bit below that. But yes, we've raised uh, a few million for the business and that's uh, with fantastic investors. Um, s v uh S7, that's now Sidious, mm. um, Ulu. I, I'm sure I'm missing half of them there. We have a fantastic group of investors supporting us. Um and yeah.
1: Oh, you know, I I actually was I was confusing it. There's a company Oyster. Oh my God, that's such. There's one in the
2: UK. There's do, one in Australia. Do, do, we've like we've actually had to go really? to base and ask them to like unmerge us with some HR account. Um, surprisingly, Oyster is a fantastic brand that a lot, a lot of people would love to have.
1: <laughs> Why is that? Is there something? What's the concept of yeah. an oyster? I guess the oyster has yeah, it's got a yeah, pearl in yeah, it. Yeah, that's so. part of it. People want so, the pearl? They're hunting for so, the pearl?
2: What we The way that we see an oyster, so there's there's two main elements, right? There's the shell and the, there's the pearl. So the shell is security. The kind mm. of bank that we're trying to build or the financial institution we want to build. Um, we want to make sure that our customers know that their funds are secure, that it's well-protected. And what's on the inside is this pearl, um, which is really the most precious thing. And what this pearl is, is it's an insight. If you think of... Um, do you know how pearls are made? Super obscure. <laughs> Ooh,
1: I think, isn't it from, isn't it from uh, yeah. sand? They're like compressed Exactly. Sand so it's
2: this something. little piece of useless sand that's compressed and polished and polished over time until it becomes something beautiful and precious. And that's the way that we see our customers' financial data. There's this entire sea of sand out there. There's all this financial data that nobody really knows how to use. Nobody understands their uh, accounts receivable, their accounts payable, Do I need a loan? How much can I afford? It's super confusing to run the financial side of your business as uh, an emerging business owner. And so we want to take all that sand, all that financial data that you have, and condense it into an insight, something valuable for you. And so really what Oyster wants to build is uh, not just another bank account. We don't just want you to to put your funds with us and then you're done. We want to help you build your businesses by build, by giving you the kinds of insights you need on the data that you're able to share with us. So that's kind mm-hmm. of kind of the two elements is being able to give you something precious in these financial insights as well as keeping you safe and keeping your funds safe.
1: I dig it, I dig it. And Mexican uh, or not Mexican, but Spanish is the language on the website is the is the concept that this is going to be specifically targeted to Mexico. As a first market, and that, or is it in other markets? I'm curious what the rollout is. Most companies would launch mm-hmm. in the U.S., roll up Latin America. Is that, yeah, I'm curious what the strategy is um,
2: there. So especially with a name like Oyster, I get that question. It's not the easiest thing for people to pronounce or understand in Latin America. How do you say Oyster? it in Spanish? It's a little softer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And so, yes, our first market is Mexico. We do plan to expand regionally in Latin America and perhaps the Hispanic U.S. market. Um, but really what we're building is an infrastructure for an international company. Um, our co-founders are Gabo and Veloz. is originally from India, studied in the U.S. Um, he has international experience. He was with? He was investing with NASPERS. He also helped build uh, the infrastructure for business banks in Germany. So like he's built this before abroad. He sees the the global scope. And on the other end with Gabo, we have this deep payments expertise. He was the country manager of Mercado Pago here in Mexico. He built the first debit card for Amazon in the world here in Mexico. Uh, he was with ProSA, which is one of the financial entities kind of on the back end here. Um, so we have this amazing combination of, um, deep knowledge in payments and banking both locally and abroad. And so the way that we're seeing this business is that Mexico is the market we know best. It's where there's a huge problem to serve small, medium businesses, but small, medium businesses need a better solution all over the world and where we could help mm-hmm. those business owners. We look to grow there one day.
1: Yeah. I dig it uh, I'm, I'm, I I want to ask you for a minute about village yeah. capital so village capital is interesting because they're they have offices is it all over the world or they have it in mm-hmm. uh, three states I've read a couple of Massachusetts New York California they're in mm-hmm. Mexico Uh I'm curious what they do at large and then what you specifically did when you were in Mexico. Yeah.
2: So, um, out of college, that was my first, you can call it formal job, was working with Village Capital, which is an accelerator and an investment fund, all focused on impactful companies. Um, so, we have, uh, we um, they have operations. I haven't been with them for a few years, but. They're still um, very close. Uh, They're originally the headquarters are in uh, DC. The fund is based out of San Francisco, but uh, they have formal operations in India, Africa, and Mexico, as well as a lot of other programs across Europe, even um, in East Asia. Um, Everything in the Latin America is run out of the Mexico office. So we do work with entrepreneurs um, in. Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, and many other countries across the region. Um, And what's really cool and game-changing about Village Capital is that they believe that who understands entrepreneurs best are the entrepreneurs. So throughout the program, it's a three-month program. It's like one intensive weekend or a session, uh, four-day session per month. And over these 12 sessions, everything that the entrepreneurs learn is how to think like an investor. So what do investors look for in market? What do they look for in building a team? What do they look for in exit opportunities? And then the entrepreneurs are trained to score each other as if you're you're an investor scoring uh, your investment opportunities. And then at the end of the program, the two highest peer-ranked companies are the ones that the company and that Village Capital invests in. So it's no...
1: Pure, oh, peer ranking. So you don't
2: have this top down like I'm the investor and I know best about your market. It's we have 12 fintech entrepreneurs, financial inclusion entrepreneurs who deeply understand Latin America, who are living it day to day, who are learning together, and then they rank each other.
1: Wow. That's a little bit like uh picking uh, you know, like the prom queen <laughs> or the prom king, where it's kind of is does that necess- does it always surface the best company? I mean, can it be kind of um Yeah you know, a little political?
2: Hey, you know, it takes a lot of maturity and we do train the entrepreneurs and there's a lot of different um, ways that we protect the the system. So that it's really something that we could trust in. Yes, there are entrepreneurs on occasion who try to game the system, but like, you know, better than anybody, your reputation is everything in entrepreneurship. If you're going to game the system for a $50,000 yeah. check, like I don't know how far your business is going to get. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: That's true. But yeah. beyond
2: that, like there there's statistical <laughs> checks. We everything is run through a Z score, so uh, we're able to see in the system that if you're a tough grader and I'm an easy grader, we level those out so that we're able to compare scores in a more even way. Um, in each session there's practice sessions so that people could actually really learn how to use the instrument and really rank each other in a meaningful way gather the data that they're missing, and you have three months to figure this out. Um, so by the fourth and final evaluation, it's a pretty serious score.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. And you must have saw thousands of, of startups, <laughs> right? During your, your time, you were there what, yeah. five years, three or year, four years. So um, what do you think about the Mexican startup market versus other Central American countries or South American yeah. countries or versus the U.S.? Maybe, I'm curious what you saw from the inside. Um,
2: It's been an amazing time to be in Latin America from 2014 to today. In 2014, we were hustling so hard just to get, I think we got like 49 applications for fintech companies, and we mapped somewhere a little bit over 100. Um, Today, if you look at the Finavista radar, they've announced like 500 fintech companies just in Mexico. Um, and you could really feel it, like this boom of fintechs really happening. Um, I know you, you've covered a lot on the podcast around Bitcoin, crypto. We see the same thing, like, you know, it was founded in, or it was launched in 2009. But 2014 is when things really started moving. We started uh, like Bitso, who just had a huge investment around announced. Um, we got to see them in early stage. Um, we've seen other companies come and go that don't exist here anymore. So it's it's been a really cool time to be here. Um, But coming back to your question, um, all that is to say that the entire region is growing and I do see Mexico growing a lot faster than a lot of other countries in Spanish-speaking Latin America. But there is also amazing innovation coming out of other countries. Um, Mexico has the benefit. We have a bigger population than any other Spanish-speaking country in Latin America Um, We have the free trade agreement with the U.S. So we have all those benefits of the economy shared with the U.S. Um, And we have a great entrepreneur ecosystem. There's more and more investors, accelerators. Um, We're starting to see even why Combinator, just in the last few years, have started to invite Latin American companies, a lot of them also from Mexico, um, we have Andresine mm. who invested in Cuenca. I think it's his first investment in Latin America, if I'm not mistaken. So we're seeing all this amazing investor excitement about Latin America, and a lot of that is based around Mexico.
1: Mm, yeah, no, it's really difficult to 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 build products like so. I'd say consumer social products. Yeah, you know, maybe like some SaaS like simple SaaS B two B tools. Um, For developers, but there's so much like what you guys are doing. There's so many business-specific tools and even social networks. I mean, it's it. I would imagine that like a company, say like Facebook, is going to rebrand their product with Spanish on Hmm. their website. Uh, Language is such a. It's an interesting uh, divide or an interesting border because on one hand, it it stops one company from creating a product and then immediately offering it to the entire world. Like I can't, I, I speak Spanish <laughs> un poco, a little bit, but I, I speak no Icelandic. So if, if someone from Iceland launched a product, I mean, they speak English there, but you know, say Chinese, uh, it, it, prevents, it prevents even if there was completely free trade and no rules at all from the government didn't block us. It'd be difficult to just, you know, s- spin up a website and then rebrand everything for the audience companies do it you can do it but more so than the the language is the country specific nuances you know just the way that people expect to do things as you know in payments every country is so different like in the US uh, everyone has credit cards People buy stuff with credit cards. That's not necessarily the way people do it. And I know in Argentina or a lot of South American countries where th- they they just don't think to use a credit card. They would just use a, a debit card or pay in cash and just pay with the money they have. And you know, there's a lot of things I, I see like that that are very specific to countries that you don't notice until you go somewhere else. Like uh, maybe five years ago, I went to uh, Colombia. And in Colombia they would never give their credit card at a restaurant to anyone. You no. would never here in America, you just give your credit card. They go in the back, you know, when you're at a restaurant, they swipe it and they bring you the receipt, but everyone comes yeah. out with the terminal, they stick it in the thing and then you sign your thing. And that was very different, obviously different. And I, I'm thinking there's gotta be tremendous opportunity for people down there to build products that are specific to their own markets. Um, I wonder how it shakes out. Like, I wonder what the trends are on this. That like uh, most, is it every country in South America speaks Spanish, except for Brazil speaks Portuguese. Uh,
2: Suriname, but yeah. Largely. uh, You talk about kind of Hispanic Latin America as one market and Brazil is its own different market.
1: Brazil is its own world. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting how they kind of carve out their own Mm -hmm. niche you know, there's like Mexico seems to be the, the the largest South American, largest Central American market for sure. And what else? Mexico. We were talking about the the uh the what would you call that? Like the cartel problems. So yeah. I think that's kind of specific in Mexico well. where it's I wonder if, if there's like a startup <laughs> opportunity to somehow fix improve that situation. Uh, or, you know, that would be the kind of thing where it's like, okay, this is a big opportunity to improve this, but this is not a problem in other countries, but still worth yeah. doing. Um, yeah. I don't know. No, it, I don't know. It, I'm curious if you have any thoughts. If any, if, have you seen any startups that are like, that would work in one market, It would work in Mexico, but not the U.S.? Yeah, uh,
2: you touched on a bunch of really interesting points there. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> in terms of like the language differences, the cultural barriers, every country in Latin America is super different. But it, the a lot of the expansion of businesses you kind of separate into like Hispanic speaking or Spanish speaking Latin America and Brazil, which is its own market with its own challenges. Yeah. Um, for example, like Brazil, almost everybody uses a credit card. Literally, I, when I went to visit one of the mm. startups we invested in with FinLab there, I, I spent an afternoon walking around a park and I see a guy carrying around like pizza boxes, like you know, kind of Pizza Hut, like, Pizza Hut like heating boxes, and he had a terminal like a payment terminal in his hand walking in the park. Because um, he's just an ambulant pizza salesman who accepts card. Everybody in Brazil uses card. And that's a huge difference compared to Mexico, for example, where over 60%, 63% of the population don't even have a bank account. Um, and Colombia is wow. very similar um, in terms of... Yeah.
1: <laughs> how, how does that work? I mean, how how, how can you? How sixty three percent of people don't have a bank account. So for most people, they're working at a, a local uh, business. They're getting paid in cash, in cash, in paper, and they're just storing that in their house. So Is that how most people are doing? In Mexico,
2: ninety percent of transactions are done in cash. Um, in terms of formal employment. Legally, all employers need to pay employees into bank accounts. Although there is also informal workers, um, and that's a big part of the economy as well. But uh, a very funny thing that you'll see, and this is the same really in Mexico, or Brazil, or anywhere else, is the paydays. You know, the fifteenth and the end of the month, huge lines around the block. Another huge problem with with these brick and mortar banks is that. Everybody goes to these ATMs to take out money and you could literally be more than an hour in line if you go on the wrong day because on payday, everybody cashes out. Um, It just You may have a bank account. And so there's a big conversation around, well, there's 63% that are unbanked that don't have any bank account. And of those, the 37% that are left, a lot of them are underbanked because they get paid into these formalized bank accounts. They take it all out into cash and then it moves the cash economy.
1: Oh, wow. That's super interesting. So it's like they're using... Is it that the government is pushing people to use electronic payments? Yeah. And then and people are kind of... As soon as they get paid in their bank account, they're just pulling it out and using cash anyways. So
2: the government tried a couple of years ago to launch an initiative called Codi Kodi Kodigo Digital, the digital code, and they're basically QR codes. And they forced all banks to offer QR codes um, to the businesses so that they could start, or to everybody, to start cl- select, um, collecting funds or getting receiving payments via QR codes. Um, I guess the nice thing there is that you're now creating this payment method where it's 0% commissions. So unlike a payment terminal yeah. or e-commerce, there's no commission taken out of it straight into your bank account. The negative side there is that because it's a government initiative that has no incentives and it's only for banked people, even though it's designed as a financial inclusion mechanism, it only helps you get payment if you already have a bank account. Um, and so it just it never latched on. Like the, There's a similar digital payments process happening in, Mex- in Brazil right now that I've heard is going incredible. Um, but there's just no incentive for people in Mexico to move away from cash.
1: Really? I mean, I would think that the incentive is that no one can just <laughs> yeah, steal it from you. you would think from that. You Why you have totally. it in your pocket. Or it's, uh, isn't there a lot of just inherent benefits oh, totally. in using electronic It's, it's much
2: safer. I mean, you don't have in Mexico, we call it the the robo hormiga, the ant stealer, which is when you spend a little bit of money here and there and you don't see all your money disappearing because you have it on hand. Um, so you don't have the robo armiga, You don't have the actual possibility of somebody stealing your cash. But here's the thing is, where is the trust in the system? Do you trust yourself or do you trust the banks? And there's such low trust in banks in Mexico mm. that people rather just hold mm-hmm. on to it. I mean, the majority of them, yeah.
1: Why is that? Is that banks uh, stolen from people or why did they get such a bad rap?
2: So- there are a lot of cases where it's come out in the news that money from pension funds or different poor investments from banks will go missing. And so that's a piece of it. But like, as a foreigner, if you go on, or even as a local, you go on any blog and you're like, hey, typing in, which bank account should I open? And the answers that you get are not which bank accounts to open. It'll be which bank's accounts not to open for all the terrible things that have happened. And everybody has a story of, The ATM stole my money, or there was a fraud incident that the bank never took care of. Customer service is really weak and unreliable. Um, And it's funny because we have this kind of catch-22 where we speak to customers. I've been doing interviews all week with customers. And a lot of them say, you know, I just don't know if I could trust Oyster because if I have a problem, where do I go? Where's the branch? Because we're a branchless model. Um, hmm. And so it's very much that mentality, though the reality is when you speak to somebody and you're like, last problem you had, did you go to a physical bank? Yes. What happened? They told me I needed to call this number. Or they told me I, I they couldn't solve it. Or they'll, they're putting in the case and it'll be 60 days. So we see all of these problems that the traditional channels aren't working, but people trust what they could physically see. Um, and there's just such low mm. trust in the banking system in general that people would just rather have cash on hand. And I mean, it makes sense. If I mean, in Mexico, yeah,
1: I almost. I, go ahead. I, yeah, no, go I would say that,
2: that there's a huge part of the population that lives on like less than four hundred dollars a month. So if you earn less than four hundred dollars mm. per month for your entire family, you're not going to mess with that money. Like you need every single cent. For your gas, for your kids' education, um, for food, and you do, just don't want to trust the bank with uh, some kind of a commission that might appear because you went below a minimum or something that you didn't understand,
1: mm-hmm. or they withhold it or something like that. I mean, I, I, is cryptocurrency available to people? Are they? Uh, do people generally understand what Bitcoin is and how is blockchain and cryptocurrencies affected? the average person in the city with respect to payments and
2: financial Uh, tools. Is it big? Yes. Is it common? No. So like if you ask people what Bitcoin is, um, you know, educated tech people living in big cities will often know quite a bit. But if you just talk to uh, like when you come in town talk with your Uber drivers and see what they know, a lot of common Mexican people don't speak so much about crypto. It's not a huge thing. There's awareness. Um, but it's not seen as like a big deal. If anything, it's seen as like exciting in terms of like the investment opportunities the speculation. Um, the Mexican peso consistently goes down in value over time. So a lot of people look to the dollar and alternatives to see how can I keep the value of my money? That's why, um, have you heard of Bitso? Mm. It's a company to just
1: yeah, I have So they have just heard got a 2.2
2: yeah. billion dollar valuation. So it's, it's a Mexican-based company, Mexican founders. Wow. And so uh they processed 1.2 billion in remittances last year, billion. So Wow. So it's, it's working. working. <laughs> like there are people that are using it for remittances, but like sometimes that's on the back end, right? Like I might not directly do like crypto wallet to crypto wallet, but I might be working with a financial institution that does. Um, so the potential mm-hmm. is there, not just for um, not just for remittances, but uh, we even <laughs> there's a a business that was started not too far from here, 20 minutes from where I am right now. Uh, it's called the Bitcoin Embassy. It's a burger joint. It's like the the center of the crypto community. A lot of events go on there, and you can pay in Bitcoin or pay in crypto money at the to buy a burger. So like, not to say it's a big ah. adoption. There's not a lot of businesses that will accept crypto. But like it exists, it's emerging, and there's huge opportunities.
1: Yeah, it seems like in a place where this is kind of true in Africa, where uh, there's not a lot of banking infrastructure or just fintech infrastructure at all. And most people in Africa, at least I, I worked with a lot of folks in Nigeria, they are using paper tender, you know, they're cashing out at a bank, very similar kind of thing where the trust in the banking system is super low, and so they just want to have it in their hand. And once they get it, once they kind of understand the concept of where the trust in bitcoin and and cryptos are, then it's like wildfire. It just people catch on. everyone has a smartphone. And I don't know if that's it's got to be yep. the same in Mexico, right? At this totally. point, everyone has smartphones. So it's like, well, once you get it and you can, you can have access to your, your coin on your phone. And I feel like we're, we're, is it a tipping point thing where it's just kind of in the conscious collective consciousness enough? And then all of a sudden, you know, bam, it just goes like wildfire. Like it seems to be the case in Nigeria that that has happened. I'm curious if that is, is the setup here in, in Mexico or, you know, maybe South America at large. I
2: see bigger opportunities with that in economies where the the local currency is more volatile, like especially Venezuela. Even mm. you see a little bit in Colombia and Argentina yeah. a lot. Um, but Venezuela in, in that economy where there is just huge problems. I mean, everybody is digitized there as first. Almost all payment transactions are digital. There's very low trust in the, the local economy. So people are trying to smuggle in dollars when they can. People are trying to see any way to keep the value of their currency. Um, and Bitcoin, blockchain, different types of cryptocurrencies have really blown up in Venezuela. I think that's that's extreme of where we could get to. Um, in Mexico, I think without those extreme conditions, it's going to be a lot slower. Uh, and that's, that's one of the promises mm. that we talk a lot when we're talking about financial inclusion. How do we get people banked? How do we give them better financial solutions? Um, there's a lot of promise in decentralized money, but I just, and there's already so little trust in technology, so little trust in the banks for people to jump to Bitcoin. It's like, you can't touch it. You don't understand it. I don't see it happening fast here.
1: Really? That's so interesting. I would think that it's just kind of like, uh, you know, it's like you have to trust it, but really you have to trust. It's not as much that you have to trust Bitcoin, but you have to trust that the person who told you about it Is telling the truth if they're very confident about it. It's almost like my, you know, my 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 dad bought some Bitcoin yesterday, and he doesn't. I don't think he would ever trust it or really have any desire to to dive deep into it. If I didn't tell him, hey, I've researched this a ton, I know it, just take my word for it, and he's like, okay, you know, and he spent one hour looking at it and then bought some. And and I I wonder if the same kind of thing could happen there. yeah. What are the kinds of things do you think about? I mean, do you do you learn about the other countries down there? Do you spend your time thinking about specifically the payments industry? Uh, are there other, other things that you've learned or study?
2: Yeah. I mean, with Village area? Capital I did touch quite a bit on healthcare, education, like other solutions. I think it's very interesting the how almost everything is, at the end of the day is going to touch fintech or financial inclusion. It's like, it's one thing to have an amazing education platform like Platzi. It's an amazing online course platform, originally from Colombia, um, huge in Mexico. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, how are people going to pay you? How are you going to make the commissions at the right balance so you can continue to run your business so you're not transferring those commissions to the client to the students? And especially on, on like what we're seeing with hacking schools, online learning platforms, is how are the students going to afford it? So lending payments, mm-hmm. like it touches everything transversally, um, and I guess the other thing that I've been learning a lot about with with the founders here at Oyster is the entire underbelly of the financial system, um, and just the infrastructure. And I think that's where the huge opportunity in Mexico and Latin America is. Is like the infrastructure of payments and banking is so complicated to work with in Mexico. Um, for example, when you want to transfer money from one bank to another, instead of like ACH in the US, we have something called SPAY. All SPAY transfers go directly through the Mexican central bank, Bancico. The type of, uh, code technology that they use is very old. Um, it's not something that's very common. So it's very specialized. So you'll see that the biggest banks are directly connected to Bancico, but all of us, Emerging players, especially people who don't have so much uh, payments expertise, um, we have to work with an intermediary because we don't know how to connect to seco or we might not have the right license to connect to them. Um, and there's basically one intermediary who has a monopoly on the entire system. So prices go up. So there's higher commission. So when you transfer money from one account to another, um, there's often commissions. There's often limited hours. Those are all things that we're either eating ourselves or eliminating for our customers at Oyster. But like, I think that that infrastructure of like open banking. How do we get data shared across financial institutions to do better underwriting? Um, how do we better ha- collect the data on our customers and do the know your business, know your customer, the and the KYC, so that we could underwrite more people and give more financial solutions to clients how do we innovate in different data sources and not just rely on the single uh, data bu- or the um, credit bureau that's the same institution from again 50 100 years back that's an institution of mexico and how do we use people's mobile device uh, other ways that they're connected to technology to understand who people are so i think th- there's all these infrastructure mm. pieces where like in the U.S., you connect to Yodlee. There's all your financial data done. We can't do that so easy in Mexico, and so that's where I think the hmm. huge opportunities are. Is what we see as consumers are kind of like this tip of the iceberg of the consumer and business financial solutions and other solutions out there. But there's this huge iceberg of the infrastructure underneath that we're still missing. Hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm curious if the, if you're if you're in charge, say you're the president, or maybe you're you're the uh, in charge of all regulations, fintech regulations, banking regulations. What do you what do you do? You're or you have you say you have a dinner with the the, the woman or man who is in charge. What's your What's your piece of advice that you give them?
2: It's a great question. I mean, I think one thing that Mexico is definitely in the right direction with is um, we passed the ley fintech, the fintech law, a few years ago. We're just, um, between the end of last year and this year, registering the first like e-money licenses, fintech licenses. Um, and the good thing is that that creates clarity. Um, but there's so many little details to the fintech law. Um, like, fintech companies are only allowed to move money. They aren't allowed to do any lending operations. Um fintech companies are not backed by the central government. So like um, in Mexico, we have the IPAB, the EPOB that if a financial institution um, basically gets under problems, that the government will come in, it's like the Fed, they'll come in and, and help those banks. And so clients feel like, great, the EPOB's there. I know that my money is safe. Um, in Colombia, with their fintech regulation, uh, to a small level, but to some level, the government is also backing up those fintech accounts. In Mexico, the fintech accounts aren't backed by a central government entity. Um, So I think that there's just a lot of different details in the way that together we could work to achieve financial inclusion by having these kinds of aspects to the regulation that will create more trust with consumers, that will make people want to use fintechs, that will create more competition, that will create more collaboration, honestly, as well. Um, And that really will help all the boats rise together.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems like the, you know if you guys, you guys are building a great product, and when great products come out there, yeah, you know, we just need the internet, and we just need people to have access to these yeah. things. And when they do, and they work, and y- there's not there's not laws that specifically prevent you from what you're trying to do. Like you, you know, as a founder, b- someone who's working with founders, you can be creative to build something that works and maybe isn't explicitly illegal and then you prove the legitimacy of the use case and then you say hey we really need to change this law that makes every transaction go through the central bank or whatever that sounds like a maybe a big rule to change but some smaller rule you can start to chip away at what might be overregulation in the banking industry which made sense in the old structure the old infrastructure but now with the internet and with blockchain technology maybe you don't need you know these local buildings and it does it does feel like it's an evolution like things are just kind of they're gonna move forward and so it's it's like
2: yeah yeah i think
1: yeah, I, it, I think know.
2: you hit the nail on the head there that it's about collaborating with the regulators. Like, I think it's very easy as like a neo bank mm. to be like the anti-bank or against regulation. Like you hear that message a right. lot. Um, but with us, like, it's all about how do we work with the traditional institutions and how do we work with the government to get further together? And I think it's just, it's patience, it's education um like there are a lot of people in the government who don't understand what financial technology is there's a lot of people not in the government who don't know what mm. financial technology is and so i think it's about how do we collaborate to create more education more awareness like how do we help the government understand um what's going on with startups how to incentivize venture creation um and something that was a lot stronger in the last administration honestly and that i hope that the the mexican government can see the value and Supporting ventures as a whole.
1: Yeah. Uh, what are the term limits there? How long do presidents stay stay in? Six
2: years, a little bit more. Years? years. Yeah.
1: Six years. Yeah. Yeah. And when was the re- most recent election? Um,
2: I think four years ago. I'd need to fact check that one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Coming up. Um, still,
2: he has a couple yeah. more years. Yeah. yeah. So it's been
1: a little while. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It does. It does feel like I, I'm. I'm. Su- I really love Mexico. Just given the fact that. It, it feels it's, a, a, it's obviously a very beautiful city uh, in every way, or country in every way. But also, just there was this one woman I met down there who was working in a co-working space, and she was trying to raise money to invest in startups. And it just feels like people are really hungry. totally. Um, and yeah, I've I, so at At Otter, the company I run, we we focus on Argentina and very similar. You know, down there where people are c- tired of the banking system their inflation is terrible like yep absolutely aw- awful in in Argentina and so blockchain has been like huge and bitcoin has been huge down there um and i think they i think most people see it as as the answer is to circumvent the system you know yeah. use it as little as possible move on and uh yeah we pay about 50% of the developers that work with us in bitcoin um, the, That's amazing. which honestly surprises me. That's yeah, yeah. They, wow. they prefer it. Um, and I, my guess is that goes up over time too. And yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Um, where can people find you or are you online? Do you use yeah. social networks, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, or I'm
2: pretty much everywhere Is Amanda J L A like Amanda J as in Jacobson, LA as in Los Angeles. Cause that was the first email I created mm-hmm. when I got into college. And so I've just stuck with Amanda JLA and that's pretty much everywhere. Um, probably the best is LinkedIn, Amanda Jacobson. There's probably only one of me in Mexico. So filter for Amanda Jacobson huh. and in Mexico and it'll probably be me.
1: I love it. I love it. And you you went to Venice yeah, High School in LA? Nice. Yeah, I lived in oh, LA cool. for five years. Not far from Venice. So yeah, good spot to be from. Definitely a, a good place to learn Spanish if you're going to be in the U.S. At least. High, no,
2: actually, it was seventy percent Spanish speaking. Um, yeah, no yeah. way. I mean, not as a primary language wow, for crazy. everybody, but like it's it's a very Latino community, and I think it also that's part of what got me to where I am today. Like having that so much cultural exposure to different kinds of people, and especially to Latin America.
1: Yeah. Are your parents Spanish or did you grow up speaking no, Spanish No, my dad's in the house?
2: actually British. My mom's American from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in LA. Um, but I did have caretakers that were from Guatemala. So since I was born, I heard Guatemalan Spanish. And uh, at the time, I couldn't say much more than like, I want juice. But <laughs> uh, I think yeah. it, it, the exposure <laughs> helped. Like I think it helped my accent. It helped my interest in the language and in the culture.
1: Mm, I love it. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Amanda. I'm really excited to get this out. And this has been a, been a great conversation. I learned a lot. And congrats on all your progress. Thank you so thing. much.
2: And thanks for your time. Um, all the best.
1: Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.